All right, let's do this. Hello, hello. Hello, Amelia. Um, hello, future Hazel and Nick. I hope you revisit this. <laughs> 32. Yes, definitely. Um, let's get into it. Uh, but let's start off with who we are. So, Hazel, can you <laughs> state your name, where you're from, and what brought you to Kalamazoo? Yeah, my name is Hazel Fulmore Brady, and I use they or she, her pronouns right now. Um, and I am from the Chicagoland area, Evanston and Logan Square in Rogers Park. Um, and I came to Kalamazoo for Kalamazoo College. Uh, it was the what I had read about the Arca Center and what, what I encountered when I visited it. Um, that made Kalamazoo College one of my top choices. And they offered me the most money, so that's how I ended up here. Nice. Yeah. What about you, Nicholas? So my name is Nicholas Davis Sipake. Um, I'm from Los Angeles, California, specifically Hawthorne. Um, and what brought me to Kalamazoo is that I was awarded the Posse Scholarship. So um, free tuition is definitely what brought me here. Um, one of the things that we wanted to acknowledge in our final podcast was um, why we're doing this together. Hazel mm-hmm. and I feel like we've shared a lot of experiences throughout um, our journey in the Critical Ethnic Studies Department. We feel like we've been able to develop our friendship through a lot of the theories, conversations, and questions that have come out of the classes that we've taken throughout our four years here. And it makes sense for us to, to do this. Um, and to, to, to start off, I think it's important that we explain how we, how we met each other. Um, Hazel, do you want to start us off with you buying yeah. a ticket to Los Angeles? <laughs> uh-huh. We had, um, we had a mutual friend um, Moses, um, who lives in LA, it's from LA, and uh, I went to visit Moses in LA, but Moses was like working a ton and had to get up really early and was having like car issues and was feeling kind of stressed by also having to host me. Um, it was like, what if you stayed with my friend Nick, who has a car, and then we just like meet up during the day? I was like, bet, I've, I've seen Nick around campus. We had a class <laughs> together at this point, and so I knew I knew you were a smart kid, but I was like, hmm, I want to be friends with Nick, uh, but I didn't really know you like that. And then um, you with very open welcoming arms inviting me into your home very generously and you took time out of you that whole week every day you like we spent like four hours in the car where you would drive me around and show me all of la we went to so many places um and hung out really hard and got really close really quick yes we did mm-hmm. yeah that was a really beautiful week um and i i think that really set us up to getting very close throughout that spring quarter following that spring break um we had a class together with Betty Lopez, the Latin American Global Context, uh, and we would spend many of those weeks being together, doing the readings together, struggling on the assignments. Uh, there was a moment where, uh, but we we ended up in Hicks doing um, that final together mm-hmm. up until three in the morning. Uh, that was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I think is beautiful about how we met each other is um, you, you got to come to LA and I got to show you like my home, my family, my cousins, I got to drive you around to the places that I thought were meaningful in Los Angeles. Um, and that inspired me to, to ask you to let me stay with you in Chicago for a couple weeks. Um, and I thought that was really beautiful because you got to show me around everywhere. We went on the L, you took me around to some museums, um, and I got to meet some of your some of your friends, I got to meet your family. And I thought that was a really beautiful experience. I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, I think traversing two cities and sharing our homes with each other also kind of showed that the, the way we interacted with the cities um, just kind of secured too that we were we were coming from similar value systems and similar curiosities. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then of course our, our other connection is, is being CES majors. So Nick, what, what brought you into CES? What got you to be a CES major? So uh, the, the funny thing about the Critical Ethnic Studies Department is that we uh, 
only had one professor, and that was Reed Gomez, um, who was still at Kalamazoo College during my first year. And I, I didn't really have an assemblance of what critical ethnic studies meant. I didn't know that I would want to be a part of the, the major, but I, I think what really pulled me into it was the relationships that I had with um, people around campus. I I got to know you really well. I got really close to, to Jesse Hadera, to Paige Chung, to Hannah Ginsberg, um, all people that I looked up to and really supported me in the times that I needed support as an underclassman, um, which I think is really beautiful. And it, it wasn't until my sophomore year that I was like, oh, a lot of these classes that I've taken so far actually fall into the electives, um, the elective requirements for the critical ethnic studies major. So I was like, oh, okay, let, let me think about that a little bit more. Um, and some, something that I think is beautiful is that what pulled me into uh, the critical ethnic studies community at Kalamazoo College was was those connections. I found a lot of trust in these upperclassmen. And uh, it, it makes me think about this reading um, that we did recently um, from All About Love. Uh, but I was looking through Bell Hooks' writing, and uh, but she says that she, she, she says something beautiful about friendship, saying that it is the place where a great majority of us have our first glimpse of redemptive love and caring community. And I really felt that, um, uh, especially in those times of need, need as a first year. Uh, but, and I was also doing, I was also looking at this other chapter having to do with um, the values of love and the love ethic where Bell Hooks says individuals who choose to love can and do alter our lives in ways that honor the primacy of a love ethic. We do this by choosing to work with individuals we admire and respect, by embracing a global vision wherein we see our, our lives and our fate as intimately connected with those of everyone else on the planet. Um, and while I was reading that passage, I was definitely thinking about how uh, I, I was receiving a lot of support from people within the major, and I really admired how people wanted to see me thrive and people wanted to see me prosper. And when I think about a learning community that I want to be a part of, it it starts with like these intimate connections. It, it starts with us seeing each other as valuable points of knowledge. Um, and it starts as us developing this sort of kinship where we, we want to make sure we're all doing well, because there's no point in us doing the work that we're doing in critical ethnic studies if we don't show uh, a tremendous amount of love and care for each other. Uh, yeah, so, so I, I think that's what drew me the most to the critical ethnic studies major. Um, eventually, I started taking classes uh, but that were major specific, but that wasn't until my junior year when Cindy arrived and I was able to um, take the, the language class. I was able to take argument with the given and so on. Um, and I I immersed myself more in the academics and I was like, wow, I'm, I, I'm, I'm really loving this and <laughs> I'm glad I became a critical ethnic studies major. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think that's funny because um, you know this, but I, I think for me, the community came after. Um, I think that I, I was struggling to find a niche on campus because it was my first year that I, um, I decided I knew I was going to be a CS major. Um, and I was searching for that community at, through Arcus and through the CCE and, and through CES. Um, but I think honestly, it was the academics that first drew me and the pedagogy. Um, and then it so happened that my friends kind of all ended up also in CES. Um, and but yeah, I, I remember reading um, the like second chapter of Pedagogy of the Oppressed in my first CES course, which was with Dr. Gomez, the language class. Um, and I was at the time and still am to an extent um, feeling really angry with school. Um, and this is something I kind of felt in high school, um, but it was really only towards the end of high school that I was really able to understand in ways that that wasn't um, 
my fault so much as um, ways that my learning style uh, wasn't supported by the educational institutions I was part of um, and also just had to do with mental health and and other things like that but um, I, I think we both do but I, I struggle with organization and time management and doing work in isolation um, and I struggle to stay motivated in school and confident in school also um, but the CES courses are, are discussion-based um, which is a setting I really thrive in and encourage creativity and cater to different learning styles and techniques. Um, Dr. Gomez would like definitely make a point of kind of learning each student um, best learning styles um, and trying to cater to that. Um, and also the material is just always really relevant, engaging, important. And so for the first time in a minute, I was feeling really passionate about school and everything I was learning felt very relevant. Um, and yeah, um, I know the CES pedagogy is also something that of course, uh, Drew, you, do you want to talk about, talk about that? Yeah, um, I, I definitely found that I do best when I'm around professors and educators that demonstrate tremendous amounts of care towards their students. Um, and I, I think I really experienced that with the first couple classes I took with uh, Dr. Shanna. Uh, but I took Reading the World Social Justice my first year, and I really liked that class. And we were learning about the Chicano movement, uh, but, and we had a lot of discussion about the education system very generally, but we had this one paper where we got to do an analysis um, on our own trajectory through through education and academia. Um, and I remember talking about the Spanish department at K a lot and how I was disappointed with it and how I was like, okay, what, who, who is this department benefiting? Um, who really gets to learn here? And one, one of the things I expanded on was this professor telling me that native speakers tend to struggle in these Spanish classes at Kalamazoo. And that was definitely something that angered me, uh, but and got me to really realize that all right, uh, but the these departments were made to cater to students who didn't grow up in a culture where people spoke Spanish, um, and then also I got to see how there was this very specific kind of Spanish that was valued, and that left me in a position to feel like what I learned wasn't valuable, um, and I'm really glad that I got to take this class with Shanna because it gave me a platform to critique Kalamazoo College and academia um, in general to to see the value in investigating our submerged perspectives, our different ways of knowing, and our epistemological activisms. Uh, but And I definitely felt very validated in the work that I produce, which wouldn't have otherwise been, been valued in other departments. I felt like that was very CES. And throughout a lot of my courses, I, I've been feeling a lot of support in dispelling the power of the academy. Um, and I, I'm glad that I've been given that space in those kinds of classes. And that definitely encouraged me to take more classes with, um, with Shanna and other critical ethnic studies professors. Yeah, um, your story with the Spanish department um, speaks to, I think, and frustrations that I've had with like the history department, which um, uh, is a department I've taken a lot of classes in um, and solidified my, my grounding in CES. Um, it was pretty weird to be, I remember we took the class with Carica Lopez, um, colonial Latin America, or Latin America in a global context, and at the same time I was taking colonial Latin America, um, which, which was a great course and I, I did learn a lot from it. Um, but at the same time, we were covering the same material in these two classes, and in one class I'd be learning normative, um, dominant narratives that we were trying to dismantle and challenge, um, and then I would go learn those exact narratives in my other class and 
they would not be critiqued. Um, and that was that was a really frustrating thing that happened. So in that in that one class of Carrillo Lopez, um, there's like one text specifically that I reference a lot, and that's the Extractive Zone, which remains one of my favorite books by Masarena Gomez Barres. Um, and that book, and also our class that we're currently taking with Dr. Baptiste about African diaspora, um, both of them discuss history and ongoing practices of racial capitalism and land theft and new and old forms of colonialism um, and violent extracting that happens in reorganizing of territories and social geographies. Um, and Gomez Barres argues that to, we need to prioritize and center um, theorization of power that's coming from what she calls submerged perspectives. So I have a couple quotes from her that I think kind of portray this idea. But she says, how can we confuse the normative boundaries of academic study by wading into the, what lies below the surface of late capitalism? She asks what epistemologies have been rendered invisible um, and then how we can expose and engage with those perspectives, which she also argues, um, I'm gonna share another quote by her, uh, I'm attentive to shifting borderlands, queer and non-reproductive worlds of horizontal and anarcho affiliation, experimental film and vernacular performances as sites of potential, not only through social movements, but also through modes of seeing, living and finding sources of exchange as alternatives to the destructive path that is extractive capitalism. Um, so I think what she's arguing and what CES classes do and try to do is engage in alternative um, modes of knowledge and theory and in her book, she engages with a lot of art. And in that class, we did as well, um, film and photography and poetry as mediums that can express and portray things that maybe are harder to articulate and can't be um, discursively summarized. Um, yeah, I think now we're kind of getting into the more like messy, messy process of understanding critical theory <laughs> and the messiness of critical theory, um, which makes me makes me think about uh, the physics of blackness as a text that you reference a lot in the conversations that we have, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, so I I took Constructing Blackness with uh, but Shanna my sophomore year, uh, but and we read Michelle's, Michelle Wright's The Physics of Blackness. Uh, but and I, I thought that was a really cool book where she interrogates what, what does it mean to be black? Um, what is the thing that connects all um, people within the diaspora? and sort of questioning it, it well, well what is it that connects all black people we, we know it's not like like phenotypical features we know that it's not history we know that it's not uh but nationality uh but but that there's still something that is connecting everyone here um and she gets into entanglement theory and wants us to see these relationships through uh, quantum physics and uh, what we could learn from the quantum realm. And uh, she, she's describing the, the relationship between quantum particles uh, as communicating with each other and imprinting with each other. And from what we know, the these quantum particles could be so separated from each other, light years away even, and still hold this sort of connection to each other. They, they still have that semblance of the imprint that they made on each other. And I, I think learning about that and discussing that in Chana's class, uh, uh, allowed me to be like, all right, uh, but what's important here to identity and the the semblance of how we identify ourselves is the sorts of stories and lineages and histories that we're connected to, uh, but and that there there's definitely more to to being a part of a specific identity than than just looking the part and renegotiating the boundaries of identity and seeing ourselves as people that add 
to to identity rather than people that are restricted by by it uh but and that i think is a framework that i could apply to my latinness to, to nativeness to queerness to different gendered identities to humanness um to my own whiteness and the, the, the this framework i think ultimately is trying to get us to see that the, these different identity markers are are things that we hold proximity to um that, that that was the main takeaway yeah i think that entanglement theory is my head is really connected also to demastery in sandra sofa's reading chicano like a queer the demastery of desire she offers um a close reading of Muraga Sheree's, whose name I'm butchering, Loving in the Warriors, which are texts that we read in Shanna's um, Chicanx Lit class. And I have a couple quotes by her also um, that I think are really connected to what you were saying about entanglement and quantum theory, um, where she says, what would it mean finally to read Muraga, not as obvious as flat evidence of queer intersectionality, but as rich contradict but as a rich and contradictory set of ambiguous, even shame-prone representations that weren't a queer reading in search of queer meeting. She also says, to do justice, to do demastery, to master demastery, would be to discipline, to tame, to reduce, to render intelligible the structure of feeling whose force is precisely in its unintelligibility. What Raymond William eloquently describes as something not yet to come, something still at the very edge of semantic availability. Um, so this idea of queerness is not a singular destination, um, that there's not really clarity in queer knowledge and queer perspectives, uh, that for something to be queer, that socially, politically, or ideologically, or tangibly, um, means that it's not going to reveal like a singular truth, but is going to be contradictory, and it's going to pose questions that create deeper understanding. Like, if you're trying to read like a queer, you're not going to be looking for answers, um, but rather you're going to be looking for questions. And these questions are going to be the source of knowledge. You're going to find these points of contradiction and ambiguity, of entanglement, um, and you're going to treat these poems as what hold the most meaning. Uh, I think she like argues that querying, querying something is like leaning into ambiguity as power and challenging also not just challenging definition and labels, but challenging the very desire to define and label, the very act of defining and labeling in the first place. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely a pivotal text for me. Um, another thing I just wanted to talk about a little was my experiences on study abroad because of course that was a really um, a formative time at K um, or not at K. I remember being unsure about even if I should study abroad because of the problematics of inserting oneself in other communities but I was really impressed at the incorporation of a lot of the ideas I was thinking about in CS in, in the program. Um, it was really small and intimate which meant we had a lot of power and Hannah and Isabel, the other K students there, in being critical, and our program mentors were really were really receptive to our critiques and encouraging of our critiques, and were really interested in, in what we had to say about shaping the program. And they themselves were like pretty radical adults who I respected for um, their commitment to uh, building relationality and trust, specifically in like the nonprofits that we would visit, because um, as members of the program on the American side. We were just going to these nonprofits for a day or two. Um, so we didn't really have the opportunity to do that. And that was really their job. And I think that they took that really seriously. And the places that we visited, they had years of relationships that they had been building with them. And they talked about that really openly and about how they were making efforts to make um, their engagement with those organizations and NGOs reciprocal to an extent. Um, but yeah, and I and the Brazilian students that we lived with, we were living with students 
um, who are our own age or in their 20s and they were all super radical and all of them were like communist and queer and were really equipped to be critical of the power dynamics between us as Americans and their role in the program and they also had were given a really big platform within that program of shaping it and they were given a lot of decision making decision making power by the adults around the program which was really great um and the other thing i wanted to mention from that um because of course there was a lot of formative experiences on that abroad but one thing i reference a lot um is these community spaces that we visited called seskis so in every major city there are several seskis and they're these big centers that offer a bunch of free services to the public um, so some of them have like dental offices um, or offer different kind of healthcare stuff, um, but they also have like concerts and they have, all of them have an art museum, art exhibit that's rotating and always centers Afro-Brazilian work, indigenous work, queer work, and was really pretty radical. Um, and of course, Suski has its flaws, but um, in general offered also all of these things were free um, and very family centered. So you would go there on the weekend and it would be full of families and they would have like large open spaces where they'd set up games for people to play in. Um, they had like the first time we went, I remember actually they were giving out this like free card game that was clearly catered towards children, um, but that taught history of LGBT legislation and laws and discriminatory laws in Brazil. Um, and yeah, those are some examples. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, right? I know, and it was something like, I haven't seen anything like that in US cities. Um, not so kind of all in one space and I, my mother is a librarian and, and I think because of that, I think a lot about like the potentials of libraries um, and museums, which, you know, are, are really uphold a lot of really violent regimes of knowledge. But I, I think there's a lot of potential for like libraries to be spaces that um, are, are community centers and offer kind of what, what to me, I just said, be sort of mutual aid um, and, and free educational resources and yeah, different free resources. And that's the kind of space and programming that I really want to be a part of. So it was very inspiring in that regard. But I know that I'm not the only one who has spent time abroad. Nick has been going to Guatemala. Uh, and you had a really, more recent, very formative time there, if you want to. Yeah, I, I think my trip abroad also uh, helped me think through a lot of CES topics, especially throughout my senior year. Um, but I didn't go abroad um, my senior year. It was in my sophomore year that I did that. I did an internship um, with Argus. So not necessarily a study abroad, but um, going on my own accord. Um, but anyways, I, I, I got to go and I worked with a nonprofit and a film company called um, La Fundación de Chicanul and La Casa de Producción. Um, and they're, they're the only independent film company located in Guatemala. And the, I think they're doing really cool work to try and bring about more um, film stories of that center Guatemalan epistemology. Um, I, I think that's really cool. I think the, the biggest learning aspect for me though, that I don't think I made until somewhere around this quarter or possibly a little before, but anyways, uh, but I, I, I'm trying to grapple with what my intentions were when I was going to Guatemala. Um, and I, I think it was very obviously like me trying to fulfill some sort of fantasy of going to, to the motherland um, and, and seeing Guatemala as a place of study. You know, these are where my parents are from. Um, so this makes sense for me to, to go back and to go see what's going on over there. Um, and this, came up for me while I was taking Baptiste's class, the one that Hazel and I are taking together. Uh, but because we, we're dealing with returns, specifically in the case of the um, African-American diaspora and um, people part of the general African diaspora returning to Africa and seeing what that means. And throughout the class, we're trying to, to construct the narrative that there, there's no real way to return to our imagined past without 
upholding di different systems of oppression. Um, and something that I got out of that class as well so far is that our positionalities place us as, as strangers in the place that we imagined as home. Um, and I, I think that very much affects, has affected the approach that I've been wanting to take in in these Guatemalan studies that I've been trying to do throughout my four years in K and specifically during that internship. Um, and I, I've been having to realize that like I cannot be contributing to an, a general idea of Guatemala that puts up boundaries and walls of and uh, supports different systems of oppression in Guatemala um, and that I should be working within networks that I already have established and that I should be conscious of how my American positionality could could shape and do harm um, in in the places that I wanted to work in. Um, there's a very real possibility for me to, to go into a space with the privilege of being like a kid from the US and gentrify and like take opportunity and fetishize um, and all, all those sorts of things. And I'm, I'm really glad that I got to take this class with Baptiste because uh, although the, the same message doesn't translate exactly to the type of returning work that I'm doing in Guatemala, I think the, the, the general thing for me here is uh, to question what is home to me. Um, specifically as someone that's seeking to follow a love ethic, um, such as what I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast. And while I'm reflecting on my experience in Guatemala um, and also all the things that we've been talking about so far, I, I've been thinking that our journeys in critical ethnic studies has gotten us to, to center love, to be critical of our institutions, to value our knowledge, to seek analysis that grapples with the many truths that we have to deal with, and to have a, for lack of better words, a social justice lens. Um, I think these are all the lessons that I'm trying to carry and put together. And I think we're seeing that this all creates a really good foundation for us to talk about UFDUC and suspending damage um, and desire-based research. Uh, but and I bring this up because I, I, I want to I want us to start talking about our um, organizing experiences throughout the bulk of the quarantine, the pandemic, um, because we, we got to work with people that demonstrated desire center research. They, they they wanted to see a reframing of real problems, inequities and injustice injustices as only like a fraction of of people's identities. Um, and they, they, they wanted to support systems and work that um, told a full story of themselves, ourselves, and the people that we were trying to work with. Um, and I, I think that very much comes from a desire-centered um, research. And I, I know, Hazel, you had something that you wanted to bring up um, about Indigenous research, if you want to bring that up now. Yeah. Um, I think in connection to suspending damage, which has, has shaped my research framing, um, another text that's been formative in that is Research as Ceremony, Indigenous Research Methods, by Sean Wilson, which Garriga Lopez assigns um, in a class that I think builds off exactly what you've been saying. And um, these are concepts that we've really grappled with together a lot and, and specifically in those organizing contexts. Um, but Sean Wilson um, describes his research paradigm, an indigenous research paradigm, um, by drawing a diagram where he draws a circle with four words in it and arrows connecting them, showing and demonstrating their entanglement and then breaks down these four words, um, which these words are very core to CES and each one could be defined very extensively because they're very complex words, but I really like his strategy of asking what each term asks of us. Um, and I think these questions really demonstrate their, their 
weight and their definition. So I was going to quickly just go over those. Um, this word is ontology, which asks what is real. Epistemology asks how do I know what is real. Methodology asks how do I find out more about this reality. And axiology asks what part of this reality is worth finding out more about. What is it? ethical to do in order to gain this knowledge and what will this knowledge be used for and i really like these questions and i think these are our questions that we've been learning to center when we do research and i think his other main thing his kind of thesis is um discussing the importance of relationality in research that an aspect of indigenous ontology and epistemology is relationality or that relationships form our reality and when he says relationality he's discussing um um, people to people, community relationships, collective relationships, the relationship between researcher and subject, and also importantly, relationship to land. Uh, and, and breaking down that Eurocentric idea that it's individuals who hold and possess knowledge. Yeah, that's all I got to say on that. Do you want to talk more about Food Not Bombs and, and the organizing part of it? Yes, exactly. So, um, uh, we we wanted to bring these up as a as a way to um, begin talking about our time with Food Not Bombs. So, so over the course of uh, the quarantine, we were able to get close with organizers in Kalamazoo um, uh, who created Food Not Bombs, which is uh, a globally known grassroots organization where most of its chapters dedicate their time towards um, resourcing food, either it be through dumpster diving or through donations um, or through growing the food themselves. Um, and and then repurposing that food to then feed uh, the, the larger community. What ends up happening is that um, people end up go going to places where there are a lot of unhoused um, folks uh, and people experiencing a lot of financial hardship on that end um, to supplement meals um, and create a space where people can gather, um, eat together, be together. Um, and we thought that was really beautiful and we wanted to be a part of that. Um, we got really into it and we started cooking meals like every other Sunday or whichever Sunday that we can. And then we would be distributing food almost every Sunday um, in Arcadia Park in downtown. Um, and uh, other than just like food distribution, we were thinking about different ideas that would be really cool to implement in the, in the city of Kalamazoo. Um, and that's when we came up with building the community fridge that's located outside of the People's Food Co-op. Um, and I, I thought that was a really fun project that we got to work on. And I think you found the fridge outside of Kalamazoo <laughs> College, right? <laughs> yes, okay. actually Megan found that. Maybe that yeah, yeah um, that, the fridge that we have does come from um, the, the, the back of Kalamazoo College. I think they were about to throw it away. Um, so we just repurposed that. Uh, but, and I, I think that was a really wonderful opportunity for us to learn from older people that shared a lot of our values and who are actually embodying a lot of the a lot of the theories, knowledge, um, and and stuff that that we've been learning the past couple of years. You know, now they're they're trying to do organizing work that um, is based off of desire. It's based off of uh, people wanting to come together and be like, "Hey, we're poor. We like have insecure connection to um, or insecure security to housing, um, and we're hungry." And maybe the thing that we could do is get together, cook together, be happy and support each other um, w without having to expect any sort of like money or thing from each other. The whole point is for us to care and 
love of one another. Um, and I, I, I think we, we have the opportunity to learn from them and also challenge them and they learned from us as well. And we, we got to get to know um, a lot of people who organize within the Kalamazoo College community, which I think is beautiful. And I, I think at the end of the day, I'm understanding how kind everyone was um, within that organizing circle, which is really surprising to me. Um, or not surprising to me, but I think really stuck out to me because uh, there are a lot of organizing circles that I've tried to be a part of and that I've heard about and read about that tend to not sustain themselves because uh, people are still operating, uh, but well, within all these biases towards each other while trying to deconstruct um, and work around different types of global oppressions or, or structures of of um, subjugation. Uh, but, and the, the one voice that comes to my head is Adrienne Marie Brown, when she's just describing um, her theory on fractals or what she has to say about fractals in her book, Emergent Strategy. Um, I read this for Amy's class, um, the Food and Farming Justice class, which I think is a very critical ethnic studies oriented course. Um, even though we don't have it listed under the electives, I think it should definitely be under the electives. Uh, but, but Adrienne Marie Brown is trying to describe fractals and, and noticing that what, what whatever like we see in the small looks the same like if we zoom out and see it on a bigger scale um she has this quote saying that these patterns emerge at the local regional state and global level basically wherever two or more social change agents are gathered there's so much um, awareness around it and some beautiful work happening to shift organizational culture and this may be the most important element to understand that we practice at the small what we practice at the small scale sets a pattern for the whole system and what she's basically trying to say is that what we're practicing with each other in organizing spaces um also reflect what's being practiced in in our city governments and our national governments and our global governments and also different types of non-governmental organizations that are doing these types of organizing work and that we we can't be we can't be expecting to see change on the larger level unless we start seeing change within ourselves and the way that we relate to each other um and i think that's something that the community in kalamazoo through food not bombs embodied the most um we had so many discussions on how to how to be good to each other we had so many just discussions to to try and uncover our own biases and how that affected people directly um we identified like people who would perpetrate harm um and people who were who experienced that harm and we would have open discussions and we would learn together on that and it would be a community process to do better with each other um i think that was such an important thing that we learned um through food not bombs and and I love and cherish that always. Yeah. Do you have anything yeah. to add, Hazel? Yeah, that's just I'm just smiling so hard right now because it's just making me remember uh so many of those memories and like specifically like the initial excitement of meeting anarchists in their thirties mm -hmm. and finding these older radical queer mentors, which um I think we obviously have mentors that we really look up to at Kalamazoo College. Um but it's exciting to meet people who are doing this work outside of academia, I think, especially for us, because we've had really fraught relationships with academia. I think it was really important us, for us to find mentors functioning outside of academia. Um, yeah, yeah, thanks for that, Nick. Um, I kind of wanted to wrap up um, what, I've, what we've been reflecting on it with um, a little bit of discussion of my understanding of, of K-12 
kinship and love and friendship, which Luna Bomb shaped, which you've shaped, which our house during the pandemic really shaped. We had a lot of discussions about how to be a supportive, loving community for each other in a really hard time. And you already shared some bell hooks um, who also really influenced that. So Audrey Lord, who I think theorizes that love is not acceptance of complexities of coloniality, but is constant resistance to them. Um, and I have a quote by Hooks where she writes, love is a deeply embodied spiritual and political practice in its fully realized capacity. It is the complete dismantling of violence. Um, and I think just that idea that if we're understanding and learning how to practice love as, as actionable, as labor, um, as time spent practicing vulnerability through emotional embodied expression. Um, it means learning and unlearning and processing trauma, which is extremely vulnerable and difficult. It means learning what accountability looks like. And a lot of this was, was really joyous work, but a lot of it was also really difficult work. Um, but I think I learned a lot about how to, how to build authentic, strong relationships and how that is what led us to do productive organizing work. Um, and that's what's shaped my understanding and my political philosophy of, of like anarchy as mutual aid and as, as loving community. And um, I always think of this like, there's like a meme I remember I saw, I think it was like my sophomore year that I saw this, but it was like what people think anarchy is. And it was like really violent imagery of um, buildings burning and mm -hmm. you know, violence is, is necessary at times too. But, um, but then it was like, at, what anarchy is to me, and it was like someone feeding chickens. And I think I've just developed this this desire to um, be part of a community that's working to build sovereignty and self-sustainingness um, and building a kinship network that that is working to understand love and the power of, of love. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that concludes most of what we were trying to talk about in this podcast. And I think what we were trying to articulate the most is that even at the beginning of our podcast and towards the end, the the framework that we developed throughout critical ethnic studies is um, an understanding that love is very central to the things that we do and to how we do it. And we, we need to be interrogating like how we're doing right by each other, how we're expressing love to each other is what we're doing um, a part of that practice. Um, and I think what I get at, at the end of the day is the, the practice of critical ethnic studies is a, a very critical idea of love um, and making sure that we're expressing it on a personal level and on a global level um, and in all the different arenas that are in and between that and around that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess that's how we're going to wrap it all up. Thank you so much, Amelia, for, for listening to this podcast. Um, and we're excited to see you on Monday and uh, we're, or on Tuesday. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, we would love to hear um, your reflections after, after listening to our podcast. So thank you. Yeah.